This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Oncology Knowledge into Practice podcast, where we discuss game-changing topics in clinical oncology with leading experts in the field. In this series, we're focusing on the ever-changing treatment landscape for cancers of the hematological system. This series is supported by educational grants from Servier Pharmaceuticals, LLC, and Takeda, who have had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. If you'd like to check out any of the publications that we mentioned in this episode, there's references and links for these in the episode notes. We're your hosts, Hannah Wilgar and Andre Grassa. To round off our exploration of optimal approaches in first-line acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL, today we'll be exploring best practice approaches in managing adverse events associated with pediatric-inspired regimens where they occur. After quickly summarizing the data in the space, we will be joined by Dr. Dieter Holzer, Director of Internal Medicine and ALL Specialist at the University of Frankfurt in Germany. As always, if you're already very familiar with the trial data evaluating this approach, do feel free to skip ahead to the interview at the five-minute mark. As discussed in the previous episodes, pediatric-inspired regimens are associated with improved outcomes compared to hyper-CVAD among adolescents and young adults, or AYAs. However, an aspect that makes these regimens more complicated is asparaginase, a component responsible for starving cancerous cells of asparagine. Asparaginase is associated with a number of adverse events and toxicities, including hypersensitivity reactions, thrombosis, pancreatitis, and hepatotoxicity. Last episode focused on hypersensitivities, and this week we're looking more in-depth at toxicity monitoring and management. As described by Aldous and Dauer earlier this year, the toxicity profile of asparaginase is unique not observed with any other chemotherapy agent, and is almost exclusively used in ALL, meaning that most general oncologists are unfamiliar with its usage, toxicities, and management approaches. As a result, oncologists who treat adults may be reluctant to use asparaginase, or may unnecessarily discontinue it because of the adverse events. It is therefore essential for all healthcare professionals likely to see AYA patients with ALL to be aware of adverse event monitoring and management approaches to ensure these effective regimens are not avoided or discontinued prematurely. Let's start by looking at thrombosis. A review by Kobrevnikar and colleagues in 2017 neatly summarizes these adverse events, reporting that thrombosis is a well-known complication associated with asparaginase. These are generally felt to be secondary to asparagine-dependent hepatic synthesis of homeostatic proteins, such as antithrombin. However, their incidence appears to be higher in adult patients than pediatric patients, with Kabrivnikar citing a study that observed thrombotic events in 34% of adults versus 5% of children. While venous thrombosis is more common than arterial thrombosis, arterial and even CNS thrombotic events have been observed. Another notable adverse event associated with asparaginase is hepatotoxicity. Kamal and colleagues reported on this in 2019. The clinical features observed in asparaginase hepatotoxicity suggest direct liver toxicity, as shown by the short latency, lack of allergic or autoimmune features, rapid decrease in liver-synthesized serum proteins, and early development of steatosis. The authors hypothesized that the mechanism of hepatotoxicity is best explained by substrate depletion of asparaginase and possibly glutamine. If so, possible therapies for hepatotoxicity would be replacement of amino acids or their precursors. Finally, pancreatitis is a significant toxicity associated with asparaginase. As summarized by Hegia and van der Sluis, 
Clinical trials have observed pancreatitis in 2 to 18% of patients undergoing asparaginase therapy for ALL, with grades 3 to 4 events occurring in 5 to 10%. While the precise pathogenesis of pancreatitis is unknown, the asparaginase induced depletion of asparagine and subsequent reduction in protein synthesis has been implicated. The authors note that diagnosis of pancreatitis is based on a combination of clinical, biochemical, and radiological evidence. And although patients with a mild pancreatitis may be re-challenged with asparaginase, caution should be exercised. Recurrence of pancreatitis has been reported in up to 63% of patients following re-exposure to asparaginase. Given these complications, routine biochemical monitoring of patients is essential to recognize and react to adverse events before they reach a grade 3 or 4 event. Returning to Kaprivnikar et al., the authors summarize recommended approaches for a number of toxicities, monitoring antithrombin and fibrinogen levels prior to each asparaginase infusion can allow for recognition of low levels and subsequent supplementation with the appropriate blood product. Similarly, hepatic toxicities can be monitored via serum transaminase and bilirubin concentrations, and pancreatitis can be monitored via elevations in the amylase and lipase levels. But what is best practice in this area? How should clinicians react to adverse events with asparaginase? Joining us this week to provide their expert advice is Dr. Dieter Holzer, Director of Internal Medicine and ALL Specialist at the University of Frankfurt in Germany. Welcome and thank you for joining us. So asparaginase is associated with a number of adverse events, including thrombosis, hepatotoxicity and pancreatitis. Starting with thrombosis, do you recommend routine thromboprophylaxis in patients? And how do you react to the development of a thrombotic event? In uh, patients without any risk factors for a venothromboembolism, we don't use it anymore. But for others, we give heparin, one milligram per kilogram per day. This is probably, it should be done. Clearly, you have to evaluate the bleeding risk of the patient very carefully. This is for thromboembolism prophylaxis, you know. Actually, our rate, this severe thromboembolism in, uh, in our study is very low. But you have to watch carefully and you have to know what to do. Second, uh, hepatotoxicity. It's a definition of hepatotoxicity. You have an increase in bilirubin and you have an increase uh, in, in the transaminase. We don't carry so much about the increase in SGOT and SGPT, but the bilirubin increase. Because if it, the bilirubin is too high, the clinicians are afraid to continue pecasparaginase. So you have to wait until the bilirubin is decreasing, actually also often with the chemotherapy, and then you can start again. We uh, analyzed if you have a, a too long delay of the chemotherapy due to a substantial bilirubin, increase, I mean really uh, substantial, then you have an inferior outcome of uh, the patient, which means you should always avoid to have too long intervals to the next chemocycle. And clearly, if uh, the bilirubin increase is solved, 
we start again with uh, with the asparaginase because it's such an important drug for children, adolescents, as well as adults. Brilliant, thank you. So moving on to hepatotoxicity, what steps should be taken to monitor for and react to these adverse events? Now, there are several opinions. Now, if we have, uh, uh, first of all, to uh, prevent hepatic effects, we have a certain criteria not to include uh, 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 patients with a history of um, uh, his, uh, hepatic disease or ongoing, uh, but then we have uh, certain rules. If a patient has a substantial bilirubin increase, we delay the, the uh, application or the transaminase, but bilirubin is most often more important. We then delay the next uh, dosage of PEC aspirogenase, uh, or we uh, not to wait too long. We start with a lower dose. Let's say instead of 2,000 units, uh, 1,000 or 500. But there is no uniform consensus how to uh, deal with hepatotoxicity. Actually, we have also some measure measure to uh, get information about the hepatotoxicity. So we do ultrasound uh, uh, before we start with asparaginase and we follow this very strictly. And we see a correlation between changes in ultrasound, increase of virus sensitivity and outcome. However, there are other groups, they have no experience with ultrasound of the liver and therefore they don't, uh, let's say, believe in it. Wonderful, thank you. Finally, pancreatitis. Given the potential asymptomatic nature of this event, what steps should be taken to monitor for and react to pancreatitis? If it is a, uh, there is a fixed term, a preclinical pancreatitis, which means only lipase and amylase is increased, but no sign of clinical pancreatitis, we continue as before. If a patient has a severe pancreatitis, we stop early, we do all the supportive measures, and we will not give asparaginase again. I, I'm talking about the very rare cases of clinical relevant pancreatitis. In most cases, it's just a chemical pancreatitis and we continue. Thank you so much for that. So finally, these toxicities can seem significant to clinicians, particularly for those in adult treatment settings who may be tempted to use simpler alternatives, such as hyper-CVAD. Do you have any advice to our listeners who may be daunted by some of these adverse events? I don't understand what the alternative is. Asparaginase, PEC asparaginase, is given together with the chemotherapy regimen. And HyperCVAT, I know the story very well, they, and the treatment and the results, they tried to do, uh, to induce also PEC asparaginase. However, due to the strong toxicity of HyperCVAT, they stopped this the treatment to give hyperseivet and asparaginase. Uh, and the same is uh, in, a, in a different form 
for the UCAL study. Uh, the rule is not to give chemotherapy concomitant with spec aspiragenase. You need an interval, and it's. Uh, uh, I'm strongly against giving intensive chemo and aspiragenase. Hyper-CVET, to your question, is a good regimen for ALL, but it has a minus, a strong minus, and this is that they don't use aspiragenase. They use it now, since they had such a toxicity, only uh, in very rare doses in the maintenance therapy. However, there are uh, subtypes of ALL, uh, such as TALL, where in children as well as in adults, PEC aspiragenase is very important. And in uh, the hyper-C bed regimen in TLL is not the most promising. So what it means, you can give your hyper-C bed and you can later give, uh, as MD Anderson is doing now, PEC aspiragenase during maintenance phase. But uh, the question is never, can you substitute aspiragenase by a chemo? Because all adult ALL patients will receive a chemo. The question is, how the best positioning of PEC aspiragenase? Uh, a group of five people dealing very intensively with, uh, with aspiragenase and having a lot of experience. We published together a paper it's uh, published in the ESMO Open uh, Cancer Horizons, and it is called Managing Toxicities with Aspiragenase-Based Therapies in Adult ALL. Yeah? A summary of the ESMO Open Cancer Horizons. It's um, published in 2020, and a lot of things you have asked me, they are all uh, discussed in detail in this very short paper. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for answering all of our questions. And I wish to thank you for the in, uh, interview. It was interesting. I think we discussed most of the as aspects of uh, potential aspiragenase toxicity, except allergy, which is in our hands is a very low rate and we are not very anxious about it. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. To recap, according to our expert, asparaginase is an essential component of ALL management, and most patients can continue with asparaginase therapy with effective monitoring and management of its associated adverse events. Only the more severe cases should permanently discontinue the treatment, while in less severe cases it may be temporarily delayed or reduced. Again, if you'd like to check out any of the publications that we've mentioned today, you'll find the references for these in the episode notes. Join us again in another two weeks for a discussion of specific adverse event management approaches. If you enjoyed today, please do subscribe and join us then. And if you have time to leave us a review, we'd love to hear your feedback. If you want more, you can also find free accredited continuing medical education modules on our website onkip.com. And you can find a link to this in the episode notes. So please do check it out. If you're a Twitter fan, our handle is at onkip. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.